Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We're continuing through our Matthew series, Following the King, and our sub-series of that, Christ's Mission for Every Christian. And today we are looking at verses 1 through 4. Now, I want to give a disclaimer before we dive in. One of our values for preaching here at Vineyard Northwest is that what we preach would be really relevant to your life and that you'd be able to apply it immediately in your walk with the Lord. And so we always try to drive toward that for every message that we write. I mean, even last week, you might remember, I think I gave you like a total of 15 different practical action steps that you could take at the end of it. And we really do value that. This morning... With this message that I'm about to share with you, I tried to come up with some like specific applications for what I'm going to teach, and they just kind of felt forced to me. And so I actually took them out of my message, and I feel like the Holy Spirit has an opportunity, uh, wants to like release an opportunity to all of you in the room this morning to, rather than like relying on the teaching team to kind of tell you how to apply what you hear. To actually like hear it yourself, jot down what stands out to you, and then later on with the Lord, ask him how to apply it to your life. And so really that's what we should be doing, all of us, every Sunday anyways, you know. But I want to specifically encourage you to do that this morning because what I talk about, what I feel like the Lord has put on my heart to talk about and what the text actually says is going to feel kind of like not hard to track with, but distant, if that makes sense, from like our everyday lives, uh, but still really important. So I just want to encourage you, jot down whatever stands out to you and take it to the Lord later and see how he would have you apply it to your life. To review, last week we talked about how Jesus looked out at the crowds, saw that the sheep of Israel were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he taught his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And little did they know that their prayer would be answered one verse later when Jesus sent them out. They were their answer to their own prayer. So with that, let's read Matthew 10, 1 through 4. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Canaanian. And Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So, first thing I want to point out is that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and then listed off the names of his 12 apostles, or uh, Matthew did, to be more exact. So why is the number 12 significant? Has anyone read through, you know, both halves of your Bible and have any guess as to why the number 12 would be significant here? Well, for those of you that guessed correctly, it was that Israel, the original people of God, had 12 tribes. And so Jesus obviously, in choosing to call 12 apostles, was playing on the fact, playing off of the fact, rather, that 
Israel had 12 tribes. Or as one commentator put it that I like, so from an early point in his ministry, Jesus was apparently thinking in terms of an alternative Israel with its own leadership based now not on tribal origin, but on the Messiah's call. It wasn't an accident that Jesus chose 12 apostles. He knew what he was doing. He was actually sending a message just in that, just in the number of apostles that he chose. And so what was that message? Well, that leads to my first point that I want to share with you. The answer is the mission of the kingdom is the fulfillment of the mission of the people of Israel. So Israel... Their story starts by being called, by Abram's story being called in Genesis chapter 12. So Abram, God calls him, says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And that nation is going to not only be blessed, but be blessed in order to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And specifically, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then people of Israel fall into slavery. God delivers them in dramatic, radical fashion and re-ups that commitment. He says in more or less words, you're my chosen people. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the earth. That was Israel's assignment. Bless the rest of the nations of the earth. So something to point out about that is that that assignment wasn't actually original, ultimately, with Israel. Humanity had had more or less that exact same assignment in the garden when God created Adam and Eve. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them two things. He gave them an identity in the likeness of God and after the image of God, and he gave them an assignment, have dominion over the entire earth, rule it, and subdue it. And so we see from the very beginning that God had actually called humanity to, from that blessed state of being in the image and likeness of God, from their blessing, bless the rest of the earth. Extend the paradise of the Garden of Eden till it covered the entire planet. So in the garden, we have this be blessed to bless the earth idea, and then In the story of Israel, Israel's assignment was, hey, be blessed so that you can bless the rest of the planet. And what Jesus is doing here, and what he does during his entire ministry is, he actually picks up that assignment that had originally been given to Israel and accomplishes it. You see, a a number of people think that the story of Israel goes something like this. God called them, gave them this amazing identity and mandate. They tried their best to accomplish it, but ultimately ended in utter failure. And so God had to come in and save the day by bringing Jesus to get it done. And there's some truth in that. Surely Israel failed many times. If you know the story of Israel, you know that there was a moment where it seemed like they were going to accomplish that assignment to bless the world, the the reign of David and then King Solomon when the kingdom essentially was, cut, was uh, established all throughout the Middle East and nations were coming to them 
um, and receiving blessing from them. And it, at that point in time, it kind of seemed like, wow, we're about to do this thing. We're about, you know, from receiving the blessing of God, we're about, we are really about to bless the rest of the world. Then everything goes south pretty quickly. The kingdom splits into two. The northern kingdom of Israel first experiences the wrath and judgment of God for all of its sin and idolatry. Then the southern kingdom follows. Both end up in exile to a foreign nation. And it kind of does seem like, okay, I guess Israel totally failed in their call to bless the world. So I get now what are we going to do? And then Jesus comes on the scene and saves the day. Well, what Jesus communicates over and over again, not just in calling 12 apostles, but in plenty of other places, is that Jesus wasn't coming in to bail out the failed Israel. Jesus was coming as Israel to succeed in the thing that God had assigned Israel to do. Jesus was coming embodying Israel and raising up 12 Jewish men to be his leaders that would experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the Holy Spirit and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Israel in Christ actually succeeded in its call to bless the world. So, back to our passage, uh, which again is Matthew 10, 1 through 4. You can throw it back up if you want. Uh, in verse 2, we read, uh, and by the way, verse 1, uh, so good. He summoned his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to cure every disease and every sickness. Last week, I talked a ton about what it looks like in your everyday life to live out Jesus' healing and deliverance mission to the world around you. And so I'm not going to touch on it this morning, but go back and listen to that message if you want to learn more how to do that. But I want to focus more on verse 2 here, which uh, is Jesus or Matthew naming out the 12 apostles. These are the names of the 12 apostles. And I want to hone in on that term apostle because apostles in Christian subculture, especially Christian charismatic subculture, that term is kind of talked about quite a bit. There's even some controversy around it that we're going to get to in a moment. But I really just want to look at it, look at the origins of it, and understand what it actually meant to be an apostle. So, um, and, and what it meant that and this is my next point, that the mission of the kingdom is apostolic. So the mission of the kingdom is apostolic because of a number of reasons. Let's get into it. So let's look at the word apostle. The definition of an apostle, just kind of biblically and also from Greek history because the word was used to describe Roman and Greek ambassadors before Jesus used it. Definition is one sent to represent another and that person's message. Again, an envoy or an ambassador or an emissary, an apostle in antiquity was someone who carried the authority and the message of someone who sent them into another place. So for example, in the Roman Empire, there were times when there was a particular city or city-state in the Roman Empire that the Roman emperor decided needed to be more like a cultured in, in Roman culture. 
And so the emperor would send an ambassador or an apostle with his authority. The ambassador carried the authority of the emperor. And with his intentions, the ambassador knew what the emperor wanted accomplished. And that apostle or that ambassador would be sent to the place and would carry out the mission that he was sent for. So that's kind of how the term was used before Jesus. And that's basically what Jesus intended when he used the term to describe his 12 apostles. Uh, A funny example from our own history that can kind of exemplify this. Did all of you know that there are 28 cities in the United States named Franklin? I mean, you think that people will get sick of the name Franklin. I mean, I know we, know, I know, I know we love Benjamin here in the United States, but 28 different cities named Franklin. So why is that? Well, essentially, what happened was there was an original Franklin. I don't know where it was. There was an original Franklin. People from that city decided they wanted to take the culture and the values and the ethos of Franklin to another place in the American frontier and like recreate Franklin or like bring about a new Franklin. And so that's exactly what happened. And really most places where you see city names replicated, like there's a bunch of Londons, there's a bunch of Springfields, there's a bunch of uh, Marions. Really that's what happened. People went from the original Marion, Springfield, Franklin and kind of went to a new place. They were sent rather, you know, to a new place to kind of recreate the previous Franklin. That's a lot of what apostolic ministry is all about. It's being sent by God to recreate the culture of the kingdom of God from that exists in one place to another. And ultimately, of course, the kingdom of God is just a reality on the earth. And so that's the ultimate place that we are being sent for when we do apostolic ministry. Now, you might be wondering, why would Jesus use a Greek term to designate his 12 chief guys? Like, he could have used prophet from the Hebrew scriptures. He could have used priest. He could have used rabbi. Like, why would he use the term apostle that was primarily, primarily, you know, secular, as we'd understand it in that day? And I think... There are a bunch of theories why he did this. What I am most convinced by is that although he could have used prophet, rabbi, or priest, and it would have been more familiar to the Hebrew people, those three terms don't emphasize the concept of mission like apostle does. Apostle emphasizes being sent to, being sent to a place to accomplish a mission and an assignment. And so I think Jesus knew that to emphasize mission in the way he would in the movement he was birthing, apostle, even though it wasn't a Hebrew term, was a better term to use. Now, like the point says, Jesus exhibited an apostolic mission. And so what it means that Jesus' mission itself was apostolic is that His mission was characterized by being sent by the Father to accomplish a particular thing on the earth. And of course, that particular thing that Jesus was sent by the Father to accomplish 
was the announcement and the demonstration of the kingdom of God in his ministry. And then, of course, his death, resurrection, and ascension at the end of his ministry. So that's kind of what it means to have an apostolic mission. Like the mission of Jesus is apostolic, meaning it is a mission where we are sent to demonstrate and announce the kingdom of God all throughout the earth. And this is why early Christians would not have understood the common American approach to evangelism, which is very passive. Like most Americans, their conviction around evangelism is something like, I don't want to be that weirdo who's out trying to sell people the gospel in the streets, so I'm just going to live out my faith the best I can and wait for someone to come ask me about my faith. And when that happens, then I'll tell them about Jesus. But other than that, I'm not doing any of that weird stuff. The early Christians would have been like, what do you mean? Like, this whole mission is about being sent. Like, we're all sent to, to, to bring this, this good news, this gospel that we heard to as many people as we possibly can before we die. And nothing's more important than that. The early church would have, had, would have been baffled and dismayed by the passive approach to evangelism that's prevalent in our day today. So I'm excited that here at this place we are changing that and we can be a part of changing that. Now one last thing about the apostolic mission of Jesus that's important to understand. The mission of Jesus was apostolic before the 12 disciples were called apostles. Okay? And that's important. Some people, through misconstruing and perverting scripture, come up with the idea that the only reason that healing and deliverance and signs and wonders could happen through Christians in the um, you know, early church was because they had been formally designated as apostles. So it was like, okay, the apostles, as designated apostles by Jesus in the scriptures, they could heal, do signs and wonders, and cast out demons, but no one since then has been able to do that. All those things kind of like ended when all the apostles died, and now we just get to advance the gospel through, um, you know, all the different natural means that are available to us. Well, the problem with that, I mean, there are so many problems with that, but the problem with that right off the bat is that the ministry of Jesus was already apostolic before he even called apostles. It wasn't like signs and wonders and demons being cast out and healings happening didn't start because Jesus decided to call apostles. That was already what his ministry was about. Because his ministry was already apostolic, he said, okay, the 12 of you who are going to be the leaders of this thing when I ascend to the right hand of the Father, you're going to be apostles. It's kind of like when I started here about 10 years ago, my title was young adult director, not young adult pastor. And Van gave me that title and he explained to me, you know, I have no doubt that you could be a pastor, Luke, but... I think pastor is a title that you earn, not one that you're just given because you got a job. That made sense to me. 
And so I started doing ministry, and I truly started to pastor young adults, not just direct them. Well, it was probably six months or a year after I'd started pastoring young adults that Van gave me the title of young adult pastor in Wilson as well. And he didn't, it's not like Van was, looked at me and said, okay, I think you're ready now to start pastoring. Boom, you're a pastor. Now you can go pastor. It was, you've already been pastoring, so I'm going to call you a pastor now so that what you're doing can match the title that you have. In the same way, the mission of Jesus was already apostolic, and Jesus' calling 12 apostles came after that. So, long story short, we can heal, we can cast out demons, we can do signs and wonders, we can participate in the apostolic ministry of Jesus. And it doesn't mean that we're all apostles. We don't all have the gift of apostle, but we all are called to live out the ministry of Jesus and follow his example, and that includes apostolic ministry. That includes signs and wonders, healing, and deliverance. Last thing I want to say about apostolic ministry. There have been two big errors, I think, in the church around apostolic ministry, and I'll even throw prophetic ministry in in there as well. Two main er errors in understanding prophets and apostles. And by the way, if those terms prophet and apostle, if this is like the first morning you're hearing them, those terms just describe gifts that God gives his people to, for the church to accomplish its mission. And there are a bunch of them, a bunch of lists, or there's several lists of them in the Bible. Uh, the most famous one we're going to read in a moment uh, gives five of those giftings. I believe every single one of you in here has a gift like that to contribute in the body of Christ. Okay, so two errors in understanding prophets and apostles. First, that prophets and apostles have ceased. And I've already kind of gotten to this, but people believe this for a variety of reasons. Some people believe that prophets and apostles have ceased because of abuses they've seen in kind of the prophetic charismatic church by people who called themselves prophets and apostles. And so... um, that kind of turns them off to, to anything supernatural. And, and it's undeniable that while all the gifts are supernatural, prophets and apostles kind of are more overtly supernatural. Um, some people, I think, have fallen into believing they've ceased, or to use the technical term, cessationism, because they really just don't, they don't realize how influenced by, like, Western rationality and modernism they are, and they just have this inherent bias against anything supernatural or miraculous, which the early church and the biblical authors, and Jesus for that matter, didn't have. But regardless of the reason, there's there are plenty of plenty of plenty of passages I could read to you that would refute that idea. Perhaps the clearest one is the one where these gifts are listed in the first place. Let's read Ephesians 4, starting at verse 11. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. Everyone say, apostles and prophets, prophets. until Until. 
the full stature of Christ. What does that mean? Well, stature, maturity could be another word, okay? So prophets and apostles until the body of Christ lives out the faith in full maturity. Is the body of Christ fully mature right now? It's not a trick question. Just turn on the news, you know, the latest megachurch pastor that's failed, right? The body of Christ is not fully mature right now. So what is this text saying? It's saying prophets and apostles are necessary to get it there. Perhaps one of the reasons why the church has struggled in maturity is that we've suppressed and downplayed these two giftings that are vital for bringing it to maturity. So that's the first error. The second error around apostles and prophets is kind of the opposite error. And this one's a little more complex, so let me, give me a moment to break it down. The second error is that the gift of apostle has recently been restored, remember that word restored, in a, in a historically unique way. Remember that phrase, historically unique. Okay? The second error is the gift of apostle has been recently restored in a historically unique way. So what do I mean by restored? Well, by restored, the, the suggestion that's, that's out there, you know, kind of in the thinking of this particular era, is that we are in this unique apostolic era of history because the offit of the prophet and apostle is presently being restored after centuries of, like, lying dormant. You know, a.k.a., there weren't a lot of apostles and prophets for the last 2,000 years of the church, but now, in the 20, late 20th and early 21st century, God is raising up more apostles and prophets than he ever has in history. That's kind of the suggestion. Now, why do people believe this? Well, I think people believe this because, historically, the church certainly has suppressed, even executed, prophets and apostles. And it's kind of like, um, do I have any left-hander, left-handed people in the room in here? Okay. So we love you all left-handers, first off. But, <laughs> but did you know that until like the 80s, there were places, public and private schools, where if you were left-handed, you were forced to actually write with your right hand. So I heard a story last night about a guy who was in Catholic school, and every time he would go to write with his left hand, a, a nun would smack his wrist with a ruler, right? So, so uh, if you look at people from, you know, the 70s and earlier, you'll see more people who actually write with their right hand than perhaps now. But the only reason that's true is that they were forced to write with their right hand by threat of, you know, punishment. So is it actually true that there are more left-handed people now than there were 50 years ago? Obviously not, right? In the same way, prophets and apostles have been suppressed throughout history. They've been forced to exercise the gifting God has given them in a foreign way to them or in an unnatural way to them. But that doesn't mean 
that there weren't people called by God to be prophets and apostles throughout history. I would suggest to you that the prophets and apostles that exist now, there were just as many 200 years ago, but the difference is now that gift is starting to be valued and expressed in the body of Christ. And so in that sense, the gift of apostle and prophet, those gifts are actually being like restored, if that's what you mean. But do I think that God is raising up more apostles and prophets than he ever has in history? No, I don't think that's the case. So that's historic, but what do I mean by historically unique? And this is probably perhaps the more problematic of the components of this error. So by historically unique, I mean that, and not me, but the position is that like never before in history, we have an elite group of apostles and prophets with an elevated status due to a categorically special or different anointing that's been put on them. And the, the issue with this right off the bat is that it creates a bunch of super special Christians who have a better, more clear access to God and therefore whose discernment from God and whose teaching we are compelled to follow more um, fervently than anybody else's. And to this, John Wimber specifically responded before he died, and he put it so pointedly, I just wanted to read it to you. A reliance on the special people to dispense the special revelations from God disempowers the church and turns God's army into an audience. And man, how that has happened. But secondly, second issue with this claim of a, an elite kind of group of apostles and prophets with an elevated status is that when you look at all of the people who are making these claims, they are primarily in the United States. Now, I'm going to say something, and I, I want to tell you ahead of time. There is not an ounce of progressive or liberal angst in this statement whatsoever. Seriously, there's not. But... The United States of America is not God's chosen nation in the church. The United States of America is 11% of the body of Christ. And although Christianity is declining here, did you know that Christianity globally is increasing at a rate double the birth rate for the whole world? You know why that is? Because while it's declining here, you go into Africa, you go into South America, you go into the Middle East and Southeast Asia, Christianity is exploding. The kingdom is on the move like never before in the world right now. And that, but, but it's declining here in the United States. What that should do is give us a little dose of humility to, rather than think that we, I'm not speaking to you, but rather than think that we have all the answers for the world, to go and learn something from the church in Africa, learn something from the church in South America, learn something from the church in these places where the gospel is exploding. But if all the prophets and apostles who are specially anointed for this hour are in the United States, 
Well, then I guess the United States is God's chosen nation. You see the problem. So, concluding thought on this, you know, throughout history, people have been periodically convinced that they're kind of like the special elevated generation and then what most often comes after that is, and we're going to usher in the return of Christ. And even the apostles, they more or less asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1 if that's what they were and if they were about to see the, uh, the apocalypse. And Jesus' response to them, and I believe his response to anybody wondering a similar thing today, is this. It is not for you to know the times or periods set by the Father. We don't need to know. Even if we are the, you know, super apostles and prophets, right? even if that is true, we don't need to know that. What we do need to focus on is what he says next. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Look, the, whatever anointing is being claimed to be out there right now, I don't think that's the anointing we need. What we need is the same anointing that accompanied the early church, which resulted in the most explosive revival in human history. We need the Pentecostal anointing. We need, and guess what? We have it. We have the same Holy Spirit that took Christianity from this tiny movement of 120 people to 50% of the Roman Empire in just a few centuries. To everything that God accomplished in history, we have that same anointing today. We don't need to go find a different one or a special one or an elevated one or an end times one. Let's just take the one we have. It's more than enough. Trust me, it's more than enough. Okay. I'm just going to read this next statement because I want to end with my fourth point. Third point, the mission of the kingdom is accomplished by a community. Great quote from that, from a, a commentator I like named Warren Carter. Mission is not a sporadic or optional activity for the disciples. It is the reason for the community's existence. Mission is inextricably linked with the idea of biblical community. Jesus called the 12, not just to have a kumbaya, but to take this apostolic mission to the world. And by the way, Jesus called both revolutionary insurrectionists against the Roman Empire and colluding government lovers, <laughs> the tax collectors, right? He called people from both of those extremes. So what that should tell us is that Jesus obviously does not see getting along as a prerequisite for the formation of his missional community. <laughs> you don't have to get along with the people that you're practicing community with. Okay, lastly, the mission of the kingdom includes men and women. Uh, I feel compelled to bring this up because in kind of our day of sexual politics and gender politics, the fact that all of the apostles were men is kind of off-putting to some of us or, or maybe less off-putting to others of us, but certainly a contentious fact that we see in the scriptures. And you've probably heard something like this before, but, but let me just share with you this one commentator's opinion on this. 
kind of helps give, get us into the mind of the first century, not the 21st century. So this is from France. In the culture of Jesus' day, a close-knit traveling group, the apostles, which included women, would probably have been socially inappropriate. But we shall discover in 2755 through 56 that women, while not mentioned in the earlier narratives, have all the time been part of the Jesus movement. They are described as having followed him during the Galilean period, the same term which we have seen to carry the connotation of discipleship in Matthew. So, from our 21st century lens, when we read that all of the apostles were men, that's the thing that sticks out to us. We're like, what the heck? Why were they all men? Is God a sexist? You know, blah, blah, blah. That is not at all what the first century readers would have thought when they read this. I mean, the fact that they all would have been men would have been as true as gravity to them. Like, it would not have even noticed them. What they would have been shocked by was, what? He had female disciples too? What the heck? What? The female disciples were entrusted with the message of the resurrection and told to take it back to the men? What is this new religion? Like, that would have been the thing that would have shook the readers from the first century. And what that shows is the subversive power of the scriptures. Okay? So the scriptures, what do I mean by that? The scriptures um, addressed sin and injustice in two primary ways. One, they explicitly condemned them, as in the case of, you know, fornication and others. Two, they subverted them. And to subvert is to covertly overthrow. A subversion is a covert overthrow. So let me just give you an example. I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go two minutes over. So let me give you an example. Um, slavery, right? There are passages in Scripture that condone slavery. But when you look at them, they are so subversive to the mindsets of the day around slavery. For example, Colossians 3, you know, Paul says, uh, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Hold up. That phrase, earthly masters, right off the bat, would have been subversive. It, it, what, what's that, what is that phrase doing? It's saying, you may have an earthly master, but ultimately you have a master in heaven. Then he goes on and says, um, when you, whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not your, your earthly masters. So again, it's like challenging just a sentiment of the day of like, wait, no, my slaves should be doing something for me, not for, not for God. They should be doing it for me. So again, there's some subversion in there. But then perhaps the most subversive part of that Colossians 3 passage, um, in, obast, in, in master's Treat your slaves justly and fairly. So what would have been radical to the audience in biblical times was that not only do slaves have a moral condition put upon them, but masters have one to their slaves. It'd been like if God told us today, like, hey, make sure you treat your cars kindly and real ni- be real nice to your car. It'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, treat my property kindly? So... That phrase, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, you know 
what that phrase, what the logical conclusion of that phrase was 1,800 years later, that the most just, fair thing for a master to do was to set their slaves free. And, of course, that was the conviction that compelled the ending of the slave trade and the outlawed slavery overall. And even though the scriptures in the first century seem to condone it, the subversive qualities of the scriptures are the things that, at the very end, that eventually did away with the institution altogether. I don't have a time to show you it, but the same thing happened with um, women in leadership. The scriptures of the day seem to condone some of like the traditional normal gender roles, but the subversive power of those scriptures, the, the hints of subversion that you can point out in them, is what ultimately has led to more and more a church that has stopped discounting 50% of its congregation and started empowering the daughters of Christ as well as the sons of Christ. All right, stand up with me. Let's pray. Prayer teams, you can come forward. As we go into just a time of prayer, um, I just want to encourage you. The story of God throughout history, starting in the garden, going to the people of Israel, climaxing in Jesus and continuing throughout for the last 2,000 years is the most incredible thing that any one of us could ever commit our lives to. And I want to encourage you, don't waste your life on something else. Don't invest your time and energy and strength and creativity to build your own kingdom or to even to focus on a relationship. At the end of the day, this mission is what we were made for. It's what every single one of us was made for. So Lord, I ask that you would let that conviction revelation fall upon us. Um, Lord, we want to be a part of your apostolic mission on the earth today. Help any weird distractions that might come up, protect us from those, keep us focused, keep us sober-minded, and keep us empowered. In Jesus' name, amen.